0: Today's episode is sponsored by Talkspace. With Talkspace Online Therapy, anyone can get therapy without traveling to an office. Be sure to use the code YOURTEEN, one word, all caps, to get $65 off your first month of counseling. Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co founders and owners of Your Team Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we're talking about the secret
1: life of teens, their social lives. Our guest, Dr. Robert Ferris, has done tons of incredible research in this field. But before we get to him, we're going to talk a
0: little bit about our high school experiences. Steph? <laughs> I feel like mine is so atypical because—and maybe everybody would say that. I moved in the middle of high school. So I was on Long Island till the end of 10th grade and then went to a whole new social jungle in 11th and 12th grade in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So I would say I, there were two different me's. So me in on Long Island was—I would say like— it, The smart, nerdy crowd, had lots of friends, but definitely studied a lot, not getting into a lot of trouble. I don't know what other people thought of me. I guess I would just put myself as like, I don't know, typical. But then we moved to Bucks County and I was invisible. So very different. That's really sad, Steph. You're certainly not invisible today. I know. I was very invisible. I definitely need... Is there a couch here I could lie on? There is. Let's get okay. to that
1: in a little bit. Okay. So my experience in high school, it kind of jumps off what Stephanie was saying, where you you aren't sure what other people thought of you, but you think you had a typical high school experience. So I was trying to come up with who was I in high school, and all I kept thinking is I only know kind of like the who I wasn't, but I don't know who I was, and I also have no idea how I was perceived. So. It got me wondering about why I can't latch on to who I was in high school. And my conclusion is that I was like every other teenager. I was testing who I was. So when you look at me at different points and even different classes and experiences, I think there was no consistent me at that time. In a very typical adolescent way, I was trying on different hats all the time. So there have been some experiences since high school where one friend told me that I was her most obnoxious friend. There were a few of us. We were totally obnoxious, and that was true. But another friend who I worried about reconnecting because I felt like I had to apologize for not always being nice in that relationship. And when we sat down to have coffee, he said to me, he preempted me, and he said, you know, I've always wanted to tell you this. And I thought, oh, God. Here it comes. And he said, you were always so nice to me in high school. I don't think any of that is weird, and I think we're going to find that out from Bob Ferris because his research shows so many interesting things about teenage social lives and how mine probably, and yours, Steph, probably reflect exactly what his research shows. But as an adult, it's kind of unnerving to look back at that time and really not be able to say, like, this is who I was.
0: Yeah, I guess it's so weird, and especially you have parenting teens, right, and looking at them, and I always, I see things in each of them that it will ring a bell where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's so me. Like one of them will either say something or the way they're acting or they'll retell a story, and I'm thinking, oh, I remember having that feeling. So weird. Yeah, I also know that I react to certain things. Like, I I mean,
1: Stephanie knows this about me. Whispering is like (laughs) a a really big thing for me. And I, I haven't been able to pinpoint where in my childhood I felt like, that was, like, the thing that set me—that created today's FOMO experience. But even when people whispered in my kids' lives, it set me off. So it's not even just about my own experiences. It carries over into mothering. You
0: know what's funny? I'm sitting here thinking, as we're sitting here recording this, that all of our intros, we're laughing, we're making (laughs) jokes, and here we're sitting here talking about high school. There are no jokes. So they're clearly—it's funny, right? I had— I'm just having that epiphany yeah, as we're sitting yeah. here that it's weightier, and obviously there's stuff tied up in it that we're not even acknowledging because I don't even know what it is, but we haven't made one joke. Yeah, and so, I think so that's indicative of something.
1: I 100% agree because one of the things I was going to talk about was this article I read. My Bialik wrote an article about being too big, you know, being too much. Oh, like, mm. like being perceived in the world as too much. And I went to share it on my Facebook page, and I couldn't bring myself to do it because I thought— Everyone's going to think that's me. And so I started telling that to other people because my whole childhood, I was told I was too much like, stop raising your hand so much, stop doing this so much, like all of these too muches. And when I talked to all of my friends, they all had the same experience. Were Wait, they, what do you mean? Meaning that they've always been told to diminish themselves, which oh. I think is a very Women? feminine. Yep. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, but, but my point in not being willing to share, not getting too far into the feminist discussion, my point in not being willing to share that article was that I still held onto this childhood belief that I should stop raising my hand so much, that I should stop being so much. Uh, in a word, oi. <laughs> okay, so right, yeah, but I think I do think like the trials and tribulations of adolescence. Even though we're, we're supposed to go through it, and and it's important to become an adult to go through it, it lingers in a painful way that even today we, we can't, can't find the humor. It's so
0: true. And I'm sitting here thinking tonight I'm going to have that stupid dream. I'm not going to be able to find my locker. Oh, I my don't even want to go to bed now. That's, uh, done. That Mom was high school ruined. or college? Well, you moved, oh, so maybe that's, that's why it was high school. Well, no. It's just general, generalized—what they were diagnosed as generalized anxiety today. Uh-huh. That was me. But I still have that dream. So my dream is the walking to a college final unprepared. That's my other one. So I have both. <laughs> so they they alternate. It's like an A-B pattern, A-B-A-B. Actually, I have that one more than the not finding my locker. I have shown up for the class— No, I'm at the final. That's right. I'm at the final and I'm insisting to the professor or the teacher, because it can be high school or college, that I have dropped the class and they have no record of it. And now I have shown up for the final. Oh, God. I heard somebody on a podcast earlier today and she was talking about she was an overachiever and all these things that were stripped from her in college and her scholarship was taken away. And she said, you can take anything away from an overachiever, but don't mess with their GPA. Wait, those are real things that happened, or that was her dream? It was a real—no, no, 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 it was real. And she said, but with an overachiever, don't mess with their GPA, and I laughed a little too hard. (laughs) That's (laughs) what I'll say.
1: (laughs) So, up next is our conversation with Dr. Robert Ferris, an expert in the secret social
0: world of teens. We can't wait for him to join us. Transitions aren't easy. For students, heading back to school comes hand in hand with a lot of tough emotions. New people, new responsibilities, even new places. And as a mom, watching your kids deal with the anxiety of change can be so hard to watch. With Talkspace Student Plan, students no longer have to schedule appointments to talk
1: about what's on their minds. For a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy, students can connect with a licensed therapist from the comfort of their device and send unlimited messages from anywhere, anytime, whether in between classes, during late night study sessions, or before a big exam.
0: The Talkspace Student Plan pairs students with licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges they face. To help your child get started for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash student to learn more. Make sure to use the code YOURTEEN, all caps, to get $65 off your first month using Talkspace.
1: For the past decade, Dr. Robert Ferris has been using social network analysis to figure out why teens bully each other, drink and do drugs and engage in dating violence. Two of these projects led to Emmy-winning collaborations with Anderson Cooper 360, with one focusing on bullying and the other on social media. Bob continues to work on these topics while developing a new line of research investigating the dynamics of social networks through time, along with their implications in individual lives. Bob, I'm so excited to be talking to you. I don't know if you remember how we met, but I watched you on Anderson Cooper 360, and it was just so fascinating. The whole program was so excellent. What year was that, Bob?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the first one was in back, way back in 2011.
1: Your research on social webs in high school... What exactly does that look like when you put it together, and ha- how do you go about finding that information?
2: The way we collect we we actually collected the original data for uh, my research in a very old-fashioned way with paper and pencil. And we had like bubble sheets, and we had an an army of data collectors go out to actual schools and sit in classrooms and instruct guide kids through the the survey which was, uh, which was started in 2003. And when our group of kids were in sixth, seventh and eighth grade, and it was based in three counties in North Carolina, and then all those kids, which was ultimately about almost 8,000 kids were followed all the way through more or less through high school for the next four and a half years. And so they were interviewed six more times after that initial survey. So we have a really, really rich data set here that has lots of information on their health risk behaviors and their and their peer relationships.
1: What was the single most fascinating finding that you took away from your research?
2: I'm gonna have to give it a tie between two findings. The first the first was kind of actually what I expected and thought was going on, which is that uh, essentially, you know, rather than sort of in contrast to the prevailing understanding of aggression, which is, was really revolved around psychological problems, you know, difficult home lives, empathy deficits, you know, something that is, you know, wrong and maladjusted going on with the aggressor. I sort of thought that there was, I at least hypothesized that there was probably another pattern of aggression, which is, you know, where it is being used tactically to climb social hierarchies. And that's what we found. We found a really multifaceted set of findings where as kids become more popular, more central in their school social web, they, on average, tend to escalate their aggressive behaviors. But they're also simultaneously more likely to be targeted. And so there's a lot of aggression that is going on among relatively well-adjusted kids. And and then in another analysis, I tried to explore whether it worked and, and in in fact, found evidence that it does. So I used, in this case, I used yearbook. I went and, and gathered the yearbook, high school yearbooks from these schools, from your books, you can really tell a lot about the the social pyramid in a school, and identified the kids who stood out, so like the prom royalty, the homecoming court, and so on. And then through the survey data, I was able to figure out who their friends were, and so I figured those were the popular crowds. And then I then I worked back. I tried to figure out who got into those popular crowds and what behaviors were associated with with entry into those. And it turns out that Aggressive behavior was associated with an increased likelihood of, of making it into the popular crowd by the time you're a senior in high school.
0: Okay, I have to um, ask you to define aggression.
2: Aggression, in, in my usage, is really just any intentionally harmful behavior that is inflicted on, on, on someone else. So it's very, very broad, and it includes, you know, of course, physical violence, but also a lot, many more subtle activities like ostracism and spreading rumors and and gossip and so on, exclusion, which is actually those are far more common than um, than physical violence, certainly. So
0: how we would have te- uh, how we would have defined the quote mean girl behavior,
2: right? In the day, right.
0: okay. Right.
2: Mm. A lot of early research in bullying really um, focused pretty quickly on the possibility that a, a bullies basically had very low empathy levels and that that's that's true or that was true given their definition of bullying and the part of the issue the difference between the discrepancy between my work and some of the earlier work that I'm reacting to is that we have really different conceptualizations of bullying and aggression and a lot of that early research really focused on very overt forms of aggression so you know physical violence and really blatant verbal harassment whereas i'm really also interested in casting a wider net and capturing some of these other behaviors that are much more subtle and kind of under the radar so the kids who are, yeah so in short they were finding that the kids who are really physically violent to their their classmates are often have psychological problems they have they're they're experiencing a you know at the very least often problematic home environments they score low on empathy indicators and they have a host of other issues. And, that, and, that's, and that's all true. I mean, that, that does describe one kind of pattern of aggression. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that research was wrong. I'm just saying that there, my research is trying to identify and really describe a second pattern of aggression where it it's tends to be much more subtle and it's being used instrumentally to get ahead in the social life of a school.
1: And we're not calling that, that you still call that bullying or you use it in a, you use a different way to describe (laughs) that.
2: I call it aggression because I'm kind of, because for one, historically the the academic definition of bullying had some requirements that I thought were unrealistic and did not, I didn't think were um, useful. So for instance, the accepted definition of bullying requires that it be intentional, harmful behavior that is, both repeated over time, so that's one character, one aspect criterion that I just didn't think was important because I've seen devastating, devastating consequences that come out of one event, you know, a single incident. In fact, I'm I'm aware of at least one or two suicides that that were at least triggered by. I'm of course, there's all sorts of other factors going on, but but were triggered by single incidents at school so I've never been invested in that that requirement that it have to has to be ongoing and then the second the other requirement is that it has to be directed to, you know from someone more powerful towards someone who's less powerful and I've always thought that, that that it's it you know that's that veers into tautology i mean we know that the person is less powerful because they're getting picked on So I never thought that was very useful. So So none of the
1: the traditional (laughs) definition works for you, and you've done and you've done this research that shows that uh, how scarring both types of behavior can be for other people.
2: Yeah, and I think also in practice, another problem with the term bullying is it really it you know well kids if you ask kids about bullying, they have a very narrow understanding of what it is. They tend to think very overtly. They don't they don't think about. Um, the stuff that's going on on social media as often they don't think about it as, as bullying. And I think that might be changing. They may be developing a more expansive view. But another thing, another problem about the term bullying is it really, it really, can you know, implies that someone is helpless and there's a unidirectional, you know, perpetrator-victim relationship. And, and often what, what I'm seeing is that it's far, the you know, social life is far more muddy than that. And there's often at least some indicators, you know, of uh, reciprocal aggression and instigation and more of, more of a back and forth than a clear cut. This kid you know, unilaterally picked on this kid and there was no, nothing else that precipitated that.
1: That one's weird to me. I understand if you're picking on one kid and then that kid picks on another kid, but you're saying there's, there's reciprocity within that same relationship
2: yeah. We actually see evidence of, well, when we talk about aggressive, aggressive behavior, we see evidence of reciprocity. And, um, so at least with respect to aggressive behavior and bullying, it's, you know, it is hard to imagine, um, a reciprocal bullying relationship because of that power dynamic, which is again, why I really focus on aggression, but we see evidence that kids are like, say in the start of a school year, um, you know Bobby is is doing mean things to Tom, and by the spring it it can be flipped or or Tom can be fighting back or and it's not clear, you know, unfortunately, we don't know exactly what they're doing. We know in general terms whether it's physical violence or whatever, but we don't know specifically what's going on. And that's another thing I would love to to get some information more information on.
1: okay. Well, when you talk about reciprocity here, on the show, you also spoke about how there wasn't reciprocity among friendships. And that yes. was, that was <laughs> shocking to me.
2: And that gets me right back to the second big surprise. And this was actually something I did not expect. And the general findings, so the, first, the first sort of thing, most significant thing that I found was this this pattern, this instrumental pattern of aggression where kids, popular kids are using it to climb higher in the hierarchy. The second big surprise, and this was actually a surprise to me, was that for the modal or the typical teenager in our study, the quality of their friendships was very poor. So for, and there's a number of indicators of this. First of which is that in our study and in other national studies of friendships, if a kid say nominates, we'll we'll typically ask uh, in our study, we ask kids to name up to five of their best male and five of the best female friends. So they had more nominations. But in both cases, Fewer than half of those uh, nominations are reciprocated. So at the very least, w- there's a lot of unbalanced friendships. And a non-trivial number of kids in our study, when we asked them how close they felt to their friends, they would name these kids as best friends, but then they would say, I don't feel very close to that person. That's a, that's a kind of a paradoxical indicator of poor, poor friendship quality. But then when you look at these friendships over time, what you find is that they're incredibly unstable. We're asking kids to name their five best friends, and in six months, they're giving us a, a whole new list.
1: I find that comforting in some weird way because, um, well, I mean, in terms of parenting teenagers, I find it comforting because a lot of experts talk about the health and wellness of your child depends on not not being popular, but having a few close friends. And, and I've always thought, well, friendships are so complicated, and to... Make success and wellness depend on that when, like next week, your two best friends dump you because that happens. what is that How do you survive that? So if it's all around, if it's like something that we should actually embed in our discussion, you can't count on really good friends in high school, so then what do you do?
2: I think that some kids can count on their friends. So it's not the case that every that the friendship stability is kind of instability rather is is uniform what i was able in my current research i've been looking at these kids who are maintaining friendships over time and they stand out in all kinds of ways like i've more or less thrown the kitchen sink at them they are doing better on any indicator I've, i've i've examined so their grade grades are higher they're less likely to be to either perpetrate or be a victim of dating violence. They are less likely to get involved in bullying. They don't care about popularity as much.
1: There goes my comfort.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how do we, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about parents that are listening to the podcast right now. What advice do we give them for guiding their kids through this social jungle of high school and and seeking out friends? So what does that look like? So I'm listening to this podcast. I'm thinking, oh boy, I was comfortable about a minute ago. Now, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, now what?
2: You know, I think a lot of kids don't know what a real friend mm-hmm. is. And I think they probably need some help in that. And they also feel, oh, and, oh sorry. And there's another indicator of poor friendship quality, which is, the, the fact that that is a risk factor for aggression, the people most likely to do something really mean to you, seriously mean to you that, that will induce distress are your friends. And everybody know that's, knows that's true, but you don't think of that as in the under that umbrella of bullying. But we we find that the friends are the most likely to to do um, really mean and cruel things with each other.
0: Is that information we want to share with our teens or not? <laughs> no, for real. I actually was not saying yeah. that in a snarky way. Like, it, would that be comforting to know that, you know, these things can happen? You know, it's kind of like the what to expect, if you will.
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that, so what's interesting though, is that that doesn't necessarily predict the end of a friendship and that can go in two ways. One, you could have a situation where you've got almost analogous to a, a a domestic violence situation where you've got a really toxic friendship where someone is, is sticking around in a friendship that is abusive for some reason, because they feel like they have no other friends because they, you know, They've, there's something about this person that is really appealing. There's also a, a more positive outcome of this where where kids you know are able to overcome and heal, you know overcome you know manage conflict, deal with you know betrayal, which happens. It's a topsy-turvy adolescent world and and I think the kids who are ma- are able to um, navigate those shoals are, are probably better off than kids who never experience it. To begin with, and, and we're able to heal a friendship if it's in fact worth healing.
0: So, what do you think helps those kids navigate that? What do you think those skills are, or that? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> can you go um, do
0: that for a few minutes and get back to this? We'll yeah. wait.
1: <laughs> can schools intervene in these situations? And is that part of your research? I don't even know. But can schools make a difference here? Like, are there some school environments that just are better at not? allowing for this social climbing in, a, in an aggressive way?
2: Right now, there's certainly a lot of room for improvement. To start with, we have a lot of money being spent on bullying prevention programs. Every one of those programs will claim to you know, reduce or eliminate bullying in their schools. But when you, well, you know, when you actually test them rigorously in the context of a randomized controlled trial, the results are quite different. Most bullying program, prevention programs that have been actually tested do not work. Do not significantly reduce bullying in their schools. Some of them even make it worse. Ugh.
1: And is there anything yeah. that does work?
2: There are a few programs that work. But probably the most successful bullying prevention program is called Kiva. It originated in Finland. It reduces on the order of like 40%. 40% the amount of bullying in schools, which is, is significant. But of course, it leaves a lot of bullying that is still ongoing. And one of the interesting findings from the Kiva results is that they have found that popular kids are more or less completely resistant to the interventions. Wow. And, and I, I would say, well, that makes a lot of sense of the kids who, whose behavior has been rewarded. Socially. Right. The best programs will definitely reduce bullying, but they're not gonna eliminate this. If bullying is continues to be socially rewarded by the audience that matters, which is their peers, we're never gonna get very far in in reducing it.
1: Can you spell the title of the program in case people who are listening want to look it up?
2: It's called Kiva and it's a capital K, a lowercase I, and an uppercase V and a lowercase A.
0: So what are, the, and I think this is maybe where Sue is starting to go, is, you know, you, you talk about these bullying programs that aren't working and maybe even making things worse. What are the, what can we affect, right, as parents? What are, you know, is it conversations about these friendships? Is, you know, what are those little tweaks that maybe can make a big difference?
2: First off, we do know that parents exert a lot of, in, or have the capacity to exert a lot of influence on who their kids are friends with. And that makes a difference. When we study how risk behaviors kind of spread through social networks, what we're finding is is that parents who are, parents affect their teenagers in multiple ways. One of which is to control, to have some influence on who their kids are friends with and who they hang out with. Another is they affect their own children and those children affect their friends. And so I'm optimistic. And I think that parents, I think probably a lot of Great parents are not critically evaluating their children's friendships unless there's a crisis, unless there's, you know, your child has been left out of something or at that point, is, I think it's probably a little too late. It's, I, think it's, I think parents should be really trying to help kids, you know, learn about what, what, what friendship really should mean and, and what you should expect from a friend and how to be a good friend.
0: So you think we can and should up our game there?
2: I think so. And I think that schools, like most schools have some sort of bullying curriculum, but far deeper than, than that, you know, what schools do right now is they reify a social pyramid. Like the stereotypical American high school celebrates one athletic activity and it's often boys football to the detriment or the, you know, overshadowing, you know, the achievements and activities of all the other kids. And so, the schools do a whole lot, formally and informally, to reinforce this, you know, shore up the social pyramids in, in, that they they house.
1: So this is going to be unpopular, but my question <laughs> is, that's okay. Should we stop doing things where popularity is the criteria? Should there stop? Should we stop having a, a prom king and queen, or? Somehow implement another way to evaluate who should be voted that voted in because it just does per- perpetuate. If if you get social status by being mean and social status gets you to be prom king and queen and that matters to you, then it you you know you've gotten all the possible reinforcement you could need for your bad behavior. How do we break down that that system? Is it, is it possible? And the reason I say it's going to be unpopular is because when we tried to— there were a few years of my kids' education where winners were out, and the competition was like you weren't allowed to have anything where you had a winner. There was something a little bit—it took our natural instinct out of the whole story. Like, I remember there was an article in the New York Times about how the kids— a kid, a parents took their kid to an art show of all the, the students' artwork— and the kid was like in kindergarten, and the kid kept saying, "But who won? But who won?" Because <laughs> every <Yeah. laughs> every single picture had a had a um, had a winner on it, and so we can't get a, away from competition. But is there a healthy way to eliminate some of it so we just don't keep adding fuel to this story?
2: The stuff like homecoming royalty—it's just so unnecessary. I mean, that's more a symptom rather than a disease. I think that. Without more, uh, you know, deeper interventions, you're not going to get rid of the, the striving for popularity if you get rid of, you know, those awards. I'm not that naive.
1: Do you have another thing that – give us, a, like, one thing that schools can do.
2: So this is radical, but, like, let's just start with eliminating <laughs> – talk about unpopular. So let's start with eliminating football, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I like to think, I like to do thought experiments. But like, what would American high schools look like without without football?
0: As the mother of a football player. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob, we can no longer hear you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, that's sort of tongue in cheek. But I, I do think that schools celebrate certain activities to the detriment of others. And I think they that, that you know, if they care about fostering an environment where kids can form lasting friendships, that are protective, then I think that providing more, like I think rather than a social pyramid, what they ought to be trying to do is kind of have like a tide pool environment where, you know, they're supporting lots of different activities so that, you know, kids who aren't particularly athletic uh, or, you know, or fast or strong or have something that they can do that's interesting to them and engaging and that gets them into uh, regular interaction with with like-minded peers and that and celebrating i mean i don't, I don't you know I'm, I'm not saying everybody has to have a trophy or a medal or anything like i you know i'm not i'm not trying to present that but i do think that right now schools really you know reinforce a very severe a very steep and severe social pyramid and if they care about the kids at the bottom then they might want to rethink the things that they are the activities that they are supporting and celebrating
1: that's great Except that we are a football family, but there are other ways to do it besides football. So this Right.
2: This, I don't mean to pick on football. That's okay. Just, everybody's, it pick,
1: everybody's picking on football right now. It's totally fine. I have asked you this question and I just love the answer. So I'm going to ask it again. <laughs> do people who are popular in high school reach their peak in high school?
2: Oh, Come um, on,
0: just answer it, Bob. <laughs>
2: Chances are, you know the the characteristics for that make kids popular in high school are often characteristics that will serve them well later in life. And I don't want to impugn popular kids because of, you know the majority of kids are not you know who are popular are not bullying other kids. That's that is a that is um, not the primary route to to high status. It's far better to be you know good looking and, and rich and athletic. And in fact, nice. those are those are all traits that will that will carry on through through life. Some kids who maybe are not as high on those metrics may use aggressive and cruel behaviors to climb that ladder. And of course, I like to think that that, that won't serve them well later in life, but it, and, and, and the jury's still out. I think sometimes um, those behaviors are, are rewarded in, in workplaces and and another venues. So
1: So if you climb to the top using aggression, the reverse does isn't true. Like you can be at the top socially without having done it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you're it's you know, if you're rich, you're, you are you already you kind of have it made, you know, in most American high schools, you already are, are fairly well set in terms of your social status in a, in a school. If you are the star of of say an athletic team, that's going to you know you're you're set, but not everybody gets to be the star. And so what do you do if you're not, if you're not rich and if you're not the star, or even if you are rich, but you don't feel completely secure in your social position? And I'm not trying to say that that if you are athletic or, or rich, that you're not also mean, that I, that I, those two you know can go together. But the sad thing is they probably don't have to be mean
1: <laughs> all right. So there's a lot of information, and you're gonna do your next project to give us all the answers. And then we'll get back on the podcast mm-hmm. and we'll have all the solutions. But I'm going to Sounds end good. with our one question that we ask all of our guests. What do you think is the biggest parenting myth?
2: You know, I'm not sure if it's the biggest myth, but the certainly a myth is that parents might might believe is that as, so long as their kid has friends, then they're doing okay socially. And I think that uh, there's a lot of, I know that there's a lot of toxic friendships uh, among adolescents and In fact, they may outnumber the healthy ones. And so parents should not take that for granted and should look critically at their children's friendships because there's a lot of potential for abuse and betrayal.
1: That was great, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. We really enjoyed the time we spent with you. Thank you.
2: I loved it. Thank you so much, Sue. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much for having me.
1: We got a lot of information from Bob Ferris, and we got a really clear glimpse of how difficult a day in the life of a teenager is at school. And so our takeaway is,
0: when your kids come home from school, be a little kinder. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts.
1: Special thanks to executive producer Michael DiAloya, plus
0: producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, if you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review.
1: Help other parents find our podcast. We'll see you next time.